Okay. Today's scripture reading is going to be from Acts 9, 1 through 9. I encourage each of you to get to your Bible or if you have a device. And while you're doing that, uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Lacey Kennel, and my husband, Chris, and our son, Gage, he's six. Um, we've been attending Crosspoint for about five years, and um, some of you may have seen me. I volunteer and serve back in Sun Chasers on registration, and we are a part of Kevin and Christy Funk's small group. And any of you that are not connected with the small group, I truly encourage it because it's life-changing. Okay, let's hear God's word. Now, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them to pr as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled, he was nearing Damascus. A light from the heavens suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? said Saul. I am Je Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you for reading that. If you do have a Bible, please get to Acts chapter 9. Good morning, church. Welcome again to Crosspoint. I am looking forward to opening God's word with you this morning, but we, before we do, will you please pray with me before we study God's word? God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this very moment in time that uh, we get to open up your word to us, God, that you have um, revealed to uh, people to write down um, words that reveal who you are and how you love us. And so this morning, God, I just pray that you would uh, open our eyes our ears to see and to hear what you are saying through your word and how you want us to glorify you and enjoy you in our lives. God, we love you, we serve you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. There's a, a professional football team from a town of Foxborough, Massachusetts, called the New England Patriots. Some of you know who they are. If you're not familiar with football, you're welcome. Um, a week or so ago, uh, the Patriots have been in the news lately because uh, there was a head coaching job change which signaled an end of an era. Under the previous head coach, there was a phrase that described how players were to act and uphold themselves. That phrase was the Patriot way. The Patriot way is described in only being concerned about the team instead of focusing on yourself. You fully submit to the leadership of the authority above you. And instead, uh, and, and, and instead of degrading your coach or teammates and the media, you always speak positive of your team. This was what was known as the Patriot way. This is how you describe that during the era of this previous head coach, an era in which they won six Super Bowl titles, six national championships, and just like how there 
certain characteristics of players and coaches who belonged to the Patriot Way. Today in our passage, we're going to see certain characteristics uh, and qualities of people who belonged to the early church, a group of people known as the Way. We're going to read about people being faithful to following Jesus. First, we're going to in our story, we're going to be introduced to a character named Saul, and we're going to read through his conversion. Uh, Saul is also known as Paul. Paul becomes one of the prominent leaders in the New Testament church, writing the majority of the New Testament books that we now have. And then there's also a second person that we're going to see in our passage this morning, a person uh, that often gets overlooked, a, named, uh, a man by the name of Ananias. Some people might just say Ananias is just an ordinary person who desires to serve Jesus faithfully in his everyday life. In fact, he's only referenced in the Bible to the connection to Paul's, Saul's conversion. So if you would, if you haven't already, please meet me in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. I'll start reading from verse 1, Acts chapter 9. Verse 1 says this, Now Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Okay, we're just going to pause here for a moment because we need to go over some details to, to set the scene. First, let's take, where, let's take a look at where Damascus is. Damascus is over here. Jerusalem is over here. Uh, it's estimated to be about 135 miles between the two cities. 135 miles. It's going to be about a six-day walk. This is significant for two reasons. First, because we see all the persecution that happens in Jerusalem in the earlier chapters of Acts, we see that the church is expanding just like Jesus said it would after the stoning of Stephen, we see the church expanding to broader Judea and then to Samaria, which is over here. And then we see here in this that the church has reached all the way to Damascus. That it is truly, as Jesus said in Acts 1.8, that the gospel is going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And we see this beginning in this opening scene of Acts 9. And so it's significant because it shows that what is happening to the church is just like Jesus said it would. We see that God is in control of the situation even during persecution. Now, the second reason that that distance is significant between Damascus and Jerusalem, because it is, shows how much Saul hated, and I mean hated, disciples of Jesus. He was breathing threats and murders against disciples of Jesus that had settled a six day walk away from where he was in Jerusalem. I just want you to let that sink in a little bit, that there's so much hate that he was willing to walk for six days to throw followers of Jesus in prison. This raises an obvious question of why. Why was there so much hate in Paul and Saul? I'm sure it wasn't like Saul just woke up one day and thought to himself, you know, I'm going to go for a six-day walk, try to put some random people in prison, uh, and because I dislike what they're teaching. No, uh, the, in his mind, there was a reason. There was a, a very logical reason for his persecution of believers. 
Part of the answer, I think, can be found in the phrase in the middle of verse 2. The phrase, the way. Verse 2 says, So if you found any men or women who belonged to the way. And this is the first of several times in Scripture that followers of Jesus are mentioned with the term, the way. Now, don't miss this. The term, the way, is used for a group to reference uh, to people who believe that they alone know the way to righteousness. And this is appropriate because it's true. Followers of Jesus confess something that uh, is true and uh, because they confess that only Jesus is the way to obtain righteousness and is the only way to be in a right relationship with God the Father. This echoes Jesus' words in John 14, 6, when Jesus uh, was telling disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This is the truth that Saul hates at this point in his life. But why? Why? Why does he hate this truth? Warren Wearsby says this about Saul's hate towards Christ and the Christian way. Warren Wearsby says, Had you stopped Saul, stopped him or Saul for his reasons, he might have said something like this. Jesus of Nazareth is dead. Do you expect me to believe that a crucified nobody is the promised Messiah? According to our law, anybody who is hung on the tree is cursed. Deuteronomy 21, 23. Would God take a cursed false prophet and make him the Messiah? No. His followers are preaching that Jesus is both alive and doing miracles through them, but their power comes through Satan, not God. This is a dangerous sect, and I intend to eliminate it before it destroys our historic Jewish faith. This may be some thoughts that we're probably going through Saul at this point. See, Saul was a man who thought he was doing God a service by persecuting the church. Despite Saul's knowledge of the law and what he knew of the Old Testament scriptures, he's spiritually blind to what the Old Testament actually says about the Messiah and what the purpose of the Messiah is. The cross, we see, is actually a stumbling block for Saul. He thought he could attain righteousness on his own efforts through the law instead of trusting the righteousness of God through Jesus. And even though this is where Saul is at, this is where his attitude is, this is where his heart is, and he's got so much hate, even though this is where Saul is, God is so much bigger. His grace is so much greater. And God is in control of the situation. Because what is about to happen next is simply incredible. So let's continue reading. Verse 3 of chapter 9 in Acts says this, As he, Saul, traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him, falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground. Though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. 
So they, looked, they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus, and he was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. Right, let's just pause there again in our passage this morning. This is truly an incredible encounter for Saul. He is confronted by Jesus, the person he has denied. Jesus, whose followers Saul has persecuted because they declare that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, the very person Saul has rejected as as the way to godly righteousness, This Jesus, in verse 6, says one of the most beautiful truths in Scripture that is summarized in one word. But. In one word, you see truth and grace and love. Truth in confronting sin. Hey, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. And then grace. But. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. In one word, you see God saying, here is your sin, but I have chosen you, and by my grace, I'm going to save you and use you for my glory. This echoes Ephesians 2, 3 through 5. It says, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, And we were by nature children under wrath, as others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. And this is true for every believer. Every believer as a part of their lives before trusting in Jesus, that they were only concerned about themselves, what makes them feel good, and that at some point in a believer's life, they recognize this, and God called them, and we have a but God moment where they confess to God, they trust in Jesus, both Lord and Savior. And in that moment, every believer receives grace, saving grace. Now I just want to add, There's someone here this morning, no matter how old or how young you are, no matter how much you think you've sinned against God, if you have never confessed to God that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness, if you've never trusted in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, God's grace is bigger. God's love is greater. And I pray that you would humble yourself today, that you would see that, that you would recognize that, that you'd see that the only way is through Christ. The only way to have righteousness that gets into a right relationship with God that saves you from eternal separation from God in hell is the only way is submitting to Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. When God saves a person, like he does with Saul in this passage, there's something special that happens. They join God's family. And what we see in the New Testament, they join the church. They join the way of following Jesus. They don't continue and however they want to live, they, they say no to self and they say yes to submitting to Jesus as king. Believers are giving a new mission 
a mission to make disciples who make disciples. And we see this as we continue in our passage. If you would go back to Acts 9 with me for a moment. Acts 9, starting in verse 10, we're going to read through 19. There's a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and placing his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority here from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And Ananias went and entered the house. He placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road you were traveling, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once something like scales fell from his eyes and regained his sight that he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. In the second half of our passage, we're introduced to a man, Ananias. Ananias, again, like I said earlier, is only mentioned in reference to this story, only reference to Paul, or Saul's conversion. And the only thing that we really know about this man is that he's a disciple of Jesus. He belonged to the way, as verse 2 talks about. But we also can know this, that Ananias, being a follower of Jesus, he knows what Jesus' voice sounds like. Notice the difference between when Jesus calls Saul's name versus when Jesus calls Ananias by name. Verse 4, when he calls Saul's name, Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul's response is, who are you, Lord? Ananias, in verse 10, when the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, Ananias replied, here I am, Lord. When Saul is called by name, he says, who are you? This implies Saul didn't really know the voice of God. But when Ananias is called by name, he knows the voice of God, he knows the voice of Jesus, and responds, here I am, Lord. From this we know that Ananias does indeed know Jesus very personally and submits to him as Lord of his life. We see further displayed uh, that he not only submits to Jesus, knows Jesus, but obeys what Jesus tells him to do, especially when Jesus tells him to go to Saul. Which, by the way, going to Saul is no cakewalk for Ananias. Notice that there was fear and anxiety that was present when Jesus asked Ananias to go to Saul. His response to the initial command was, I have heard from many people. This man has done much harm to, to, the, to the saints in Jerusalem. He has the authority to Find anybody who believes in Jesus and, and throw them in prison. Can you sense the anxiety, the fear? I mean, I, I would be. It's life-threatening. There, there should be a, a, a little bit of, God, I, I, this is going to put me in danger. Are you sure? And notice how Jesus responds. 
Jesus responds with grace. He doesn't condemn or judge Ananias for his response, but rather shows him grace. In verse 15, But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Jesus repeats the command to go. And then in grace, allows Ananias to know the bigger reason why he's being commanded to go. Now, Jesus didn't have to do that. But because of his grace toward Ananias, he tells him these things. And then what do we see? What's the response? In the rest of the passage, we we see Ananias then going and doing what God commanded him to do. He approaches Saul with kindness as he uses the familial term brother to a man who was breathing murder and throwing people in prison and had hate. And even though there was anxiousness and a little fear, Ananias shows him kindness and calls him brother. And then he lays his hands on Saul, intercedes for Saul, and then baptizes him. And Saul's baptism is just this amazing story of reversal, is it not? Saul was once a man persecuting the early church the way because of Christ. And now Saul joins the way, the early church, by publicly identifying with Christ. He does this through baptism. And now he's identified with the group that he was persecuting and knowing that he's probably going to get the same treatment. We see this amazing picture of God's sovereignty, God's love, and God's grace. In this great reversal, in this story, we also see God uses Ananias, a man who desired to serve Christ faithfully in his everyday life. And from a big picture point of view from our passage, we see God calling people to obedience, to faithful obedience. We see that with Saul. We see that with Ananias. And as a result, we see the gospel going out and reaching people. We see men and women who confess Jesus as Lord and Savior as the only way. We also see that that group is known as the way. But we also see certain characteristics of people who belong to the way. And those characteristics are still true for believers today. People who confess Jesus as the only way, the truth, and the life. From our passage, we're going to see, we see three main characteristics of people who belong to the way. First one is this. They know God personally. From our passage, we see that people who confess Jesus as Christ and Lord and Savior. They know God personally. This means that you are able to know when the Holy Spirit is telling you to do something. You're able to discern what is from God versus what is the temptation from the devil. You know what God's Word says, so you know how to walk uh, godly and act godly in certain circumstances. You talk with God on a regular basis. I don't mean repeated formulaic prayers, I mean, honest conversations, good quality time with God. There's this two-way street of communication with, with God for those who know God personally. You know, receiving God's spoken word through uh, His revealed 
uh, word and through the scripture, as well as having conversations back to God. You know how God loves you. You know how God views you. Knowing God personally is a key characteristic of belonging to the way. It was true then. It's still true today in 2024. Second characteristic, you trust and submit to Jesus, Lord and Savior. When you're aware of your sin in your life, you run to Jesus as your Savior. You seek restoration and fellowship with God after you're confronted with sin in your life. You trust and place your faith in Jesus to lead you. You're not making plans without first seeking guidance from Christ. You view Jesus as King. So that what he tells you to do, you do. You submit to his leading with joy. Even if it goes against self-preservation, even if it goes against your normal patterns of life and routine, even if it makes you feel uncomfortable, you obey and trust Jesus with the results because he is king in your life. This should cause you to look, cause you to act differently than the majority culture in society. It will make you distinct from worldly patterns and thought as you reflect the love of Jesus to the people around you. It's true of the way back in the early church. It should also be true of people who confess Jesus as Lord and Savior today. The third characteristic of the way that we see in this passage is that people live on mission in their everyday lives. It's true then, it's true today. You, you know and you are aware of people who don't know Jesus as their Savior and Lord. You're intentional with those people. That means that you pray for them. It means that you make intentional efforts to make connections with them. You're not passive, but rather you're making the effort to reach these people. You're aware of not just of the loss in the world, but you're also aware of the needs of believers. You encourage believers with God's Word and remind them of their identity in Christ. You serve alongside believers in the work of the ministry that God has given to His church. It was true then. It should be true of people today. These characteristics of belonging to the way of Jesus are things that should be happening in our everyday lives. If at home, if you have a spouse, if you have children, if you have siblings, if you have roommates in college, if you have neighbors, people you interact with on a daily basis, people you encounter and have conversations with regularly. Maybe it's at work if you have coworkers or employers at school, teachers, other students, teammates on sports teams. Maybe it's when you're out and about shopping or going to coffee shops or getting groceries or you have doctor's appointments. Whatever you already have going on in your daily lives, you have everyday opportunities to know God deeper, to trust and submit more to Jesus as Lord of your life, and to be more intentional to live on mission. Maybe you're here in this room and you're starting to feel a little tension, and that's okay. Because you hear what God's Word's saying, you hear what I'm saying, and you just think of all the ways you don't do it, all the ways that you fail at these things. There's this tension between God's standard and the reality that I will never reach God's standard. 
We have this part of our humanness called flesh. We will sin in failing to do what God calls us to do. We will sin in those areas more than we will ever realize. But God's grace is sufficient in our weaknesses. God's grace is greater than our sin. And by His grace, He uses our feeble efforts to display His glory to the world so that people may come to know Him. God produces the growth. He calls you and I to be faithful. And when we fail to be faithful, when we realize our sin, He calls us to repent. He calls us to turn back. He calls calls us to trust Him, to live for His glory and not our own. So I ask you this morning, what's one of these characteristics do you need God's help to grow in? Where is God calling you to grow in your faithfulness? For Saul, God was calling him to give up his agenda and start living for God's agenda, the agenda of being on mission and sharing the gospel. For Ananias, God was calling him to go outside his comfort zone, to show kindness and to care for Saul and to faithfully disciple him. What about you? Where is God calling you to grow in your faithfulness? To close, I want to end with a story. Hopefully this encourages you in light of what we've talked about. There's a man named Edward Kimball. He was born in 1823, lived until 1901. He's not some big-name preacher or theologian that received worldwide fame or attention. No, Edward was an ordinary person like you and me, trying to live out his identity in Christ in his everyday life. He had a wife, four children. He had held jobs as a public school teacher. And then he worked with a firm of carpet dealers. And then he worked with sales in hardware, hardware stores as well as sales in school furniture stores. Everyday jobs. Kimball also served the local church. He helped coach multiple churches to get out of debt. He served faithfully as a Sunday school teacher in which he taught mostly teenagers. Again, Edward Kimball, ordinary person like you and me, desiring to be a faithful follower of Jesus in his everyday life. One day, while teaching Sunday school, a teenage boy walks into his class. Mr. Kimball instructs the class to turn to the book of John. That's what they were studying at that time and that day. But this certain teenage boy was unfamiliar with the Bible and didn't know where individual books were located, so he turned to the front of the Bible not knowing where to go. The rest of the class laughed. The rest of the class was like, how do you not know this? Judged him. With grace and kindness, Edward Kimball opened his own Bible as a teacher to the correct passage, gave it to this teenage boy, and asked him to read it in front of the class. Because of Mr. Kimball's kindness, this teenage boy continued to come back to his Sunday school class for an entire year. Now, Mr. Kimball, one thing you should know is that he was a teacher who made sure he gave every student an opportunity to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. And after a year of this teenage boy coming to Sunday school, Kimball met this student at at their place of work, a shoe store. In the stock room, of the shoe store. 
And that teenage boy accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior that day. The name of that teenage boy is D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody became one of the greatest evangelists in the 19th century. He founded Moody Bible Institute, of which I, along with tens of thousands of others, have graduated from. You can also direct, uh, trace a direct chain of evangelism, of uh, spiritual influence from D.L. Moody to Billy Graham. Think about all the people that Billy Graham has reached with the gospel. You can trace it all back to a Sunday school teacher. Edward Kimball, ordinary person like you and me. Desiring to be a faithful follower of Jesus in his everyday life. Teaching teenagers. Like Edward Kimball, like Ananias, like Saul after his conversion, we should desire to be a faithful follower of Jesus in our everyday lives. So let us as believers, part of the way in the year 2024, know God deeper. Trust and submit more to Jesus as Lord of your life and be more intentional to live on mission in everyday moments. Now, as we continue our worship service, we're going to respond with some songs. We're going to take our offering um, during the first song. So if you would, please join me in prayer as uh, I pray for our offering. So will you please stand and pray with me? God, thank you that you are holy, that you are God. Thank you that you are graceful, you're merciful, that you are good. God, thank you for choosing us and calling us to live on mission for you. God, I just pray that as we continue to worship you, that we would respond in a way that trusts you, places our faith in you, that we respond in, in, in a way that gives you the glory. And so God, help us just to, to do that in these moments uh, as we continue to worship you in the service. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I just want to read from more of Ephesians 2, just as an encouragement before we go out. Verses 8 through 10. For you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourself, it is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Let that be an encouragement. Let that be a comforting truth. That God is with you. God has prepared works ahead of you to walk through, to do. I pray as followers of Christ, people part of the way that we would walk faithfully and glorify God in our everyday moments of life in those works that he has ordained for us to do.